Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about the things that we have to teach one another and learn from one another. Last week, I introduced you to my friend Colleen, who talked about her experiences as a young girl with knowing how to listen to her inner voice. And then over the course of growing up in society, losing touch with that for a time and her journey back to what she calls that inner yes and letting that guide what she chooses to do. I ended last week's episode when she was just starting at Naropa University in the Transpersonal Eco-Psychology Program. And she was talking about how she knew deep in her bones that she would meet someone, some being, as she says, that would be very important to her. Colleen has some more insights to share with you, but this week I'm going to weave a different thread into this story and introduce you to another friend of mine named T-Bird. I'll drop you right into the beginning of our conversation and be back a little later with some more thoughts for you. So, shall we get started? Yeah, let's get started. Tell me about, um, I mean, I was, I feel like I was there when some of this inspiration came forward, but I don't really fully know what Dead Man's Forest is all about. Yeah. The vision that started Dead Man's Forest came to me one night in, in Death Valley. It was actually after our after our time across the threshold, mm. uh, after I come back, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had just had this dream. And the dream was this. There was a, like a broad landscape that was completely lifeless. You know, so it's mm. cracked earth and stark mountains in the background set against a, a gray sky with <laughs> swept clouds and there's just nothing living it was just bleak and desolate and in the middle of the landscape like it it was the only thing there was plopped down this man and of course that's what i saw in my vision but it could be could be any person and the man was also dead just like a skeleton sitting there kind of closed, torn, like you'd been sitting there for years. And yet, bizarrely, growing out of this dead man's head and his heart, kind of coming out of the neck of his shirt, was a forest, a living forest that was tiny and beautiful and green and alive and completely juxtaposed with the the complete lack of life in everything around it. And I woke up from seeing that, and I knew immediately that 
the man was me and that I had died and I had in my head and my heart all of this beautiful knowledge and wisdom that I had accumulated over the course of my life, lessons that I've learned in ways that no one else can learn them, things things that cried out to be shared, this this forest, and and I had for some reason I'd never shared it. I'd never taken the seeds from the forest and planted them in the landscape around me. And so I died in a dead landscape. I, mm. Instead of the forest that I could have died in, had I been courageous enough or unselfish enough or whatever to share those things, mm. to share those that I knew. And so that was my, f- my first takeaway. It was, it was a warning to me, like, don't keep these things inside yourself, Michael. And shortly after that, I realized that, that that vision is true for everybody, that all of us have things that we know, things that we've learned from the experiences that we've had that are completely unique to us that no one else has had in the same way that we can choose to share or we can choose to keep them to ourselves. And so conversation in the dead man forest is to give people an opportunity to share those things. So yeah, that's, that's the context of it. And that's the question that I'm going to ask you to start is, what are some things that you know, T-Bird, some life lessons that you've learned that, that guide how you move, how you make decisions, or how you make meaning in your life that are really important to you that you think other people might be able to learn from? Hmm. So, but before, before I let you take off on that, mm-hmm. say for my listeners, I am talking with my good friend T-Bird, who I also met in the desert. And I want to give him uh, just as much time as he wants to tell you the things about himself that he thinks you should know. So T-Bird, tell us about T-Bird. What's important? (laughs) Uh, You know, it's funny. Thank you for that introduction and the context of of this beautiful space you're offering, creative inquiry. So, yeah, hi, I'm T-Bird. My name was given to me when I was a kid by a sibling, I think. I have a lot of older siblings. And um, my full name is Thompson Alexander Bishop. And as a kid learning to write, that was a big pain in the butt. So um, I just, I got T-Bird as a nickname and it stuck. And um, so what, introduction or where, where, where are we at? Yeah, tell us what things should we know about who you are? I want to draw your attention to a specific aspect of T-Bird's response to this question that really struck me. I think that a lot of us have trouble clearly and confidently articulating who we are. You will hear, however, that T-Bird does not. He knows exactly who he is and how to say it. And you can tell, based on his response, that he has put a lot of work into understanding himself. Let's listen. And it does. Well, 
That's great. I am initiated life force and I flow with active peace. I am a committed husband, committed to husbanding. And I, yeah, you know, I grew up with like a lot of people somewhere in the middle of things in media rays. I, I just, I started to recognize that I was operating out of this like habituation, this like, it's not as if all of us start with perfect settings, but I'm definitely very highly sensitive individual. And I was as a kid and I started music as a five-year-old and Within like two years, I was writing songs. Some of the songs I still actually remember, which is, you know, 30 years ago. And it it's become a, almost an internal psychological mnemonic, this place, this reservoir of creativity that exists there. And that has been a refuge throughout my whole life. Somewhere along the way, around eight or nine, I started to get bullied that was just so weird and i also i was actually physically really tough because i grew up with these big brothers and they were (laughs) we were really rough and tumble and got my nose broken got black eyes got a broken finger broken wrist and so my brother finally comes to me and he's like look dude just stick up for yourself fight back these kids aren't going to be able to hit you any harder than 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 i ever have and he's six years older and, and so I did, you know, I was like 10 year old. I went to a different school. I started to fight back and it was so weird. This long or the beginning of what would be sort of a long divergence from, from this like true nature, from my true nature, from the life force that was in me, you know, in that process of trying so hard to fit in and get my needs met as a creative introvert stuck in a very extroverted alpha male world you know I've I've also very as a child and still quite androgynous but I grew up in a culture that was not very open to that and so I part of like learning to fend for myself I also learned to sort of put on veneer and a mask and and really forfeit my power and I'm you know I'm in my late 30s now and None of that could I have begun to articulate until I was really in my 30s. The, this time of renewal, sort of the return, the incorporation phase of the dark night of my soul happened around 30, 31. But um, I was fortunate enough to get into a very prestigious college, and then I had the opportunity to go on a semester abroad to India. And I, I've always had an adventurous spirit. You know, in my 30s, I've run over 30 marathons or longer and a 50 miler and all of this aspect that needed a place to like expand and be in nature. And I don't go out there because I'm fast or I want to win. I just go out there because I want to spend a whole day feeling my humanness, feeling this animal body that is Earth, that is the song of this creative life force on this planet, that I am of it. So I go to India and it's amazing and i see people often and i'm interacting with people who have you know in so many ways 
on the on a material scale so little. I was learning how to play the bean flute, which is a snake charming flute in the slums in Jaipur, in this little 10 by 10 foot concrete room that Puranji and his family lived in. And I was so struck by the the capacity for human resilience and joy. And then when I came home after, and then, and then actually I spent my independent study project with the Tibetans and I was really coming into this introverted aspect and something was happening inside of me. Something of that inner divergence as a 10-year-old was now like breaking open as a 20, 21-year-old. I came back to the U.S. right around Christmas time and I was so I was in so much culture shock at the sheer audacity of of our infrastructure, of roads and running water and electricity that was consistent, that it really began to strip away some of these layers. I ended up getting very depressed, very suicidal, very much within what I would call and my study of transpersonal psychology would call now a, a spiritual crisis, a spiritual emergence, and of the most loving family. They're just so great. They also come from a long line of the medical model. My dad was a doctor. His dad was a doctor. This concrete thinking that if we just do X, Y, and Z, we can fix X, Y, and Z. And they meant so well. And then in so many ways, they you know, never gave up on me. They loved and were willing to try whatever would help me get out of what looked like, um, you know, suicidality, depression. And unfortunately, the mechanisms of that sort of mechanistic worldview, a paradigm of anthropocentrism, was not where I found healing. And I have met so many people now who also have not found healing there. So I was in a treatment center. They put me on these meds. In seven weeks, I gained 75 pounds. And so now I went from being suicidal, really depressed, to being suicidal, depressed, and seriously life-threatening overweight. And so the ego death was like complete. All of what I thought that I had been in my whole life was gone. And I'm stuck in this bland mental space. As a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, there's a lot of suffering there. And I, it's so interesting, too, because I still didn't see myself as suffering. I just thought I was, well, I don't know. I thought I was depressed or something. But it was literally when I was 30, when I was in Boulder, and I was under the care of this most amazing doctor who's also a transpersonal psychologist who for the first time in my life, so from 22 to 30, eight years of up and down, never really getting out of it, this like funky in-between um, in the vision fast rites of passage phase, we might call it the, the dark night or the liminal space or betwixt between or really threshold time. Yeah. That, you know, he looked at me. I, I can really, I can sit in the office right now in my memory and look at him and the head of the, the program, the Windhorse program, who are uh, so just such heart-based healers, he says to me, he's like, you know, Thompson, you don't deserve to suffer like this. And I was like, 
I'm not suffering. What are you talking about? Like internally, all this old story just started washing out of me, and but I didn't say anything. Right. And I sat with it, and I was like, whoa. Suffering is so many forms. Suffering is a culture in our world that's set on this business as usual. If you think of like Joanna Macy and Active Hope and this idea that there are these three stories of our time. One is business as usual. One is the great unraveling, everything's falling apart, which is also true. And then one is the great turning, where we recognize that business as usual is not getting our worldview, our, all of us. It's not considering everybody. It's based on exploitation and greed and all of this. And so it's causing this great unraveling. But instead of looking away from the great unraveling and the great turning, we start to turn toward it and recognize our grief is actually our passion. Mm. Recognize this this space within us that knows that that, this, that there can be and there must be a better way to have integrated relationships with the ecosystem that we live in, mm. to, to halt some of these industrial-based thinkings, practices that strip the earth, destroy a mountain for some, for some rubble. Mm. And uh, I... Um, yeah, so what, did, what, what was all that? That eight years in the middle and betwixt and between, and then I started to come out, and then I was really recognized that I wanted to help, and I got into advocacy, and I recognized that there was a lot of this great unraveling, business as usual, still happening in advocacy, too. And I didn't know those terms. I didn't know these ideas at that time, but that's what I experienced. I experienced a rightness and a wrongness and you should be doing this. Oh my God, how could you still drive that kind of car? And, and all of this top down expectation. And I, I was, I was volunteering, interning, working at a really prestigious organization and they asked me to catch up on some of their materials. And what I read changed. I, it kind of was like the big stop sign again, you know, what is this? Very common practice. So-and-so has got an undercover investigation video of this person abusing this elephant. And if they don't go public and apologize, then we're going to release the video and all this crap, right? So it's a, it's a whole section of manipulative coercion. And it's a tactic that's used throughout. And I am a plant-based being. I choose to live a vegan life, but I'm not going to choose to use war to propel that all this life on this planet, they should have more choices, not fewer. Mm. And that includes humans. So anyways, the they went ahead and released the video and and the 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 elephant trainer started getting death threats and bricks thrown through their house window and I'm like, wait, we're just sacrificing like we're halting one form of violence, but we're imbuing another. And like, how, what, what is that? What is this advocacy? And so I had this question, how do we advocate for something without advocating against something else? And that became sort of a, a leading aspect within me for a while, from like 31 to 35. Through that, I came across the EcoPsych program at Naropa, and on day one was greeted in council, the way of council, as taught by the Ohau Foundation, sitting in a circular, secular circle, having a talking piece. And they, in this group of 20 people I'd never met, sitting cross-legged on the floor after we had bowed in to this 
also secular but Buddhist inspired tradition where we we come fully into our beingness and we bow to all that has brought us here and then we bow we come back up in the third part recognizing that we're here and we're going to be present with whatever comes forward and we went around and we gave our introduction and so my name is T-Bird, gave a little bit of introduction, how I got to this program. And they came back and they were like, T-Bird, we see you. And it really set me back. I was like, I just like, I remember like sitting back like two inches. I was already sitting up, right? So I'm just like, whoa, this exists. There is another way. And I just put my toe in the water. And yeah. It's not it's not as if the thinkers in this world have been mm, blind to all that's happened or the directions of these iterations of exploitation or feudalism or whatever it is. It's been there. There's there's always been some thread of humanity that recognizes it just like we do. It's just that nowadays our modern communication can allow for such understanding to to be a thread that actually connects us like you and I are, two different states through some kind of medium. And we both can connect to this passion to a forest of ideas and, and meaning making. Mm. Um, so in the 90s, recognizing the blame and shame inherent in the environmental movement and how it was yeah, it was really a false refuge for trying to open ourselves to what else is possible. This idea of eco-psychology, where eco ecology meets psychology, became a lecture series at Harvard. And then Theodore Rozak wrote it out. And you know, this the, the sort of the underlying principle is that we don't have to use blame and shame. You just... If we create the opportunity for people to have meaningful experiences in nature, then it's just as as E.O. Wilson will talk about with the biophilia hypothesis, we have an innate nature within us that resonates with the nature outside. And so there's really no separation. The separation is a perceptual split that is perpetuated ongoingly since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and since Descartes and Bacon and this idea that nature was just automation. Nature is not automation. And most of the indigenous ways of knowing and lots of other practices throughout the world have have not lost that. And so it's not so much that nowadays everybody's like, oh, let's go glorify the indigenous cultures and all that. No, it's just to recognize that the idea that we are somehow a part of nature, it, it's, it's not new. We're returning to something because our particular sect of culture we forgot this and we didn't mean to forget it. It's just what happened, right? We wake up as kids in this world and we're like, oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to do to get along. We go to the school and we do this kind of thing. Not everybody really has the time to go outside because the business as usual model says, well, you need to work this many hours to make this much money, to pay your mortgage, to do X, Y, and Z. And oh yeah, you want to have kids someday. So you better put some money aside. And it's very integrated outside the way that our ancestors lived. And so there's a, it's actually a paradigm shift to make ourselves and nature available to one another in that reciprocal relationship. But the greatest part about that is that it, it can happen right now. Anybody that has a free minute can go outside and admire a bird or walk by a tree and recognize that you're also that tree's cousin 
long-term nephew. That bird and you come from the same initial spark on those ancient seafloor, the first cities. So, so that's the return. The return is, is actually helping to model an understanding that, you know, in this great turning, as we learn what our gifts are, as we allow our grief to be our passion and, and to find ways to create this positive affirmations to nature and, and dispel the myth that we're somehow separate. And to me, that's exactly what the Vision Fast Rite of Passage model helps with. And that's what it's helped with, with me. I've been doing Vision Fast now really in the School of Lost Borders way for about three years. And go out on the land, me and backpack, emergency food, gallon of water for every day. And you just go out and make your own damn ceremony. The school doesn't profess to have some way. In fact, their bare bones theory is that they let the land initiate. There's, the guides don't even do anything except for tell the, you know help you hear your own story at the end. Right. Yeah. But the, the initiation happens with you and the land, you touching that naked infinity, the dead man's forest, that aspect within ourselves that's dying to be heard by Earth, that I'm alive and I matter. And Earth, you're alive and you matter. Our world matters and so do you. I'm going to pause the conversation there, but this arc that T-Bird has been sketching of himself as a little boy who had to learn some coping strategies that weren't really a fit for who he was. Mirrors in a lot of ways Colleen's story, and that will come back in next week's episode. But you then heard T-Bird describe the inner conflict that he felt as an adult as a response to that. And rather than talking immediately about how that conflict is being resolved in his life today, he talked about the world at large. He talked about a conflict in society that has been building for a long time, at least since the Industrial Revolution, and about this great turning and he's just started to indicate that this turning is taking place, but not yet what effect it has had on society, and certainly not what effect it has had on him personally. He and I certainly go into that in more detail, and I will share that with you in a future episode. But I'll pause the conversation for now, since we have reached our time limit. And next week, I will start weaving together Colleen's story and T-Bird's. I hope you will join me for this journey. Thank you for listening. Thank you for choosing to try to learn more about yourself, about the world, and about life. As always, if you have any thoughts to share, you can reach me via the contact form on deadmansforest.org. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.